0: Hello, everyone. Good morning. We are in chapter 12 of our journey through the Gospel of John. How long have we been doing this now, Dave? Two years? Five years? Five years we've been preaching. Well, no, wait. We just celebrated our 40th year, right? It's been 40 years since we started preaching through the book of John, and we are finally halfway there. So at the end of chapter 12, Jesus brings his um, earthly or his public ministry to a close, um, going out, doing the healings, miracles, teaching. That part, in a public sense, is coming to a close, and we're about to turn the corner now to what is known as the farewell discourse from chapter 13 to chapter 17. So in the 12 preceding chapters, he talks about himself, he talks about the Father, their relationship, he talks about faith, all of that, who he is. John wants to convince us what? That, he, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have life, life in all its Fullness, But again, we're turning the corner now into chapter 13, which we're going to hear from next week, um, which begins what is known as the Farewell Discourse. And what I love about the Farewell Discourse is this, that Jesus, John just really does a great job of, of showing us who Jesus is in his humanity. He has spent now three years with these 12 individuals, these 12 men. They are the closest thing that he has to them. Uh, that he has to, to family, right? I mean, he has a mom, he has brothers and stuff, but these are the guys that he has done life with day in and day out. And he knows where his life is headed. He knows where his earthly ministry is going to come to an end. It's going to end on the cross. And so he begins to speak to them in very tender ways. And you can really just, if, if you take the time, as your pastor, I am... I want to say telling you. I'm going to back off from telling you. I'm going to ask you very gently to read chapters 13 to 17 sometime this week in preparation for our time together next week. Read all five of those chapters at one time, and you will get a sense for Jesus' love and tenderness and compassion for his disciples and how he wants so much for them. He aches for them. He tells them what is about to happen to himself. He also says, I promise to send you the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, so he can be to you all that I was in body, but can no longer be. And so Jesus just pours out his heart to his disciples in those five chapters. So again, I, uh, I implore you, I ask you, read those chapters leading up to next week. But this last part of chapter 12 begins a series of what are known as fulfillment quotations in the book of John. Uh, It begins with the script, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We see this in chapter 12, 13, 15, 18, three times in chapter 19, because John, in bringing to you the life of Jesus in his public ministry, we've also seen seven signs that point to his messiahship, um, he's going to, to try to tie a bow around it. He's trying to bring the pieces together so that you would believe and have life by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And this last section we're gonna look at today, which is um, verses 37 to 50, really reinforces a number of truths about believing in Jesus. A number of truths about believing in Jesus. And I'm gonna ask you to strap your uh, crash helmets in. Get, you know, be prepared. Um, They're not all uh, the truths They're not all easy to digest, and they're not all easy to take, okay? Some of these are harder truths. So just roll with me. So where are we at in chapter 12? We have talked about how Jesus um, raised Lazarus from the death in the town of Bethany. Bethany is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, very close by. And then Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem because it's the time of the Passover. And he comes into Jerusalem... In a very triumphant way, as you will recall, he comes in riding on the foal of a donkey, but he is met by fanfare. He is met by pomp and circumstance because as people are gathering for the Passover, Jews from all over the region are streaming into the city to celebrate this very momentous day. So Passover, for those of you who who may not know, um, Passover was to commemorate the time when God delivered uh, Israelites out of Egypt um, by the, through his servant Moses by sending the plagues, and on the tenth plague, which was the plague of the death of the firstborn, um, what God instructed the, the Israelites to do was, I'm going to send this plague to convince Pharaoh to release you from slavery, but in order to do that, I have to do something that is less than palatable. I, I'm going to kill the firstborn of Egypt. But, in order to spare you, my people, the sign is that you would paint the blood of a lamb on the doorframe and the doorpost of your home. And when the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord sees that, they'll pass over. And so it's to commemorate God's mighty hand of deliverance to the Israelites. And so they've all streamed in. But not only that, word would have gotten around about this miraculous... um, thing that happened in the neighboring town of Bethany where Jesus, this, this man, this prophet that they've heard so much about, is, did this amazing thing. And so in, uh, in today's terminology, you could say that Jesus went viral at that time. Everyone had heard th- about what Jesus had done, and people are losing their minds They are just beside themselves and saying, is this the guy? Is this the one we've been waiting for? We know that the scripture says that Messiah will be here. This guy raises people from the dead. It's got to be him. And so what do they do? They meet him with palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of victory. When a conquering hero came back from his exploits, he would ride into the city, and the people would carry palm branches to celebrate that because it was a sign of victory. And so people are waving these palm branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. God saves, and they are even calling him the king of Israel. In response to that, as you, if you might recall if you were here last week, Jesus preaches a very hard message he says to them, if you would believe in me, if you would have life, then you must actually first die to yourself. Die to myself. Now, I personally am very appreciative of that message. I'm very appreciative of what Pastor Luke had to say last week about Um, what it means for us as followers of Jesus Christ to die to ourselves. It was a hard message, and some of you may have felt that last week. And he quoted this verse. He didn't put it on the screen, but he said it, and it's from Galatians 2.20. I think this encapsulated for me a lot of my life is this. And this is a word for all of us. This is the words of Paul. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's a hard message to say, die to yourself. Believing in Jesus can be hard. Believing in Jesus can be hard. Jesus has a history of hard messages. We see in Matthew chapter 8 He has followers um, who come, and and one man says to him, Jesus, I'm going to follow you to the ends of the earth. I am going to follow you all the days of my life. And you would think that Jesus would be ecstatic about it. He's like, yeah, more followers. Awesome, right? We're all about followers. Grammars, anybody? No? And so more followers. But no, what does Jesus say to this man? He says to him, foxes of holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." What he's essentially telling this man is that, you want to follow me? Let me tell you what you can expect. You can expect not to know where you're going to sleep. You can expect not to know where your next meal is coming from. Your ideas of safety and security, you can toss all of that out the window. Now, we come to Jesus and we expect more safety and security. We expect blessing. We expect him to fix all the things in our life. But the reality is Jesus is saying to his followers, follow me, and safety and security will not be guaranteed. Parents out there, what more do you want for your children than safety and security? We teach them that. We, we set them up in life for that purpose. And yet, we want them to be disciples of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying that you can't expect that if you follow me. This is a hard teaching. Following Jesus, believing in Jesus can be hard. He says to the next guy that comes along, the next guy comes along and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And the pastor in me, of course, would be like, of course you should bury your father. That's the right thing to do. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That is a hard, hard message. You look at John chapter six. John chapter six, Jesus tells his disciples, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part in me. Like what on earth? He's saying that if you do not live a life like mine, if you do not live by the reconciliation, by the forgiveness and salvation that is affected through my blood, if you don't live in a way that reflects that in your own life, then you can have no part in me. He's not saying eat his flesh and drink his blood, literally, of course, but that's a hard message. And look what John chapter six, verse 60 says. This is the response when he said that. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then in 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back and no longer walked with him. Believing in Jesus can be hard. But there's hope. You look around you, you have a room full of people who have experienced the following of Jesus. And I can guarantee that many of of you sitting here would say, yeah, it's been hard. But you know what? It's been worth it. I wouldn't trade any of it for anything in the world but to follow Jesus who holds me tight in the grip of his grace and knows better for me than I know for myself. But despite all that Jesus had done, many did not believe in him. We see this in our verse here, verse 37 to 41, the first part of our passage today. It says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ from afar and spoke of him. So in verse 38 it says so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So, people have seen these signs, and they have not believed in him, but it's done so that the words of Isaiah might be fulfilled. So, the question we have here is, number one, who is Isaiah? Number two, what was the word? And three, how is it fulfilled? So, Isaiah was a prophet, and a prophet simply is a messenger of God, a mouthpiece of God, somebody God raises up um, to, uh, to give his message to his people. Okay, it came during a time, uh, in place in the history of Israel, Um, and they were raised up to proclaim the truth that God had. Oftentimes, it was to proclaim judgment on people as well, Uh, and it was often about a certain situation or for uh, regarding a particular state of affairs. So Isaiah is a prophet, one of the greatest prophets. He wrote a book called Isaiah, Um, and so there were a number of prophets in the Old Testament. typically they end with Aya or Eya and some with Jeremiah, right, Obadiah, um, Isaiah. So if you, if you see those names, think prophet, but not always. So you have a number of these prophets. Isaiah, um, we don't know exactly. We, we know who he is, but we know very little information about him as a whole. But what we do know is that over the course of his life of prophesying, Um, He said a lot about the servant of God. In fact, he wrote four songs called the servant songs that talk about this servant of God who is to come and what to expect and what what that might look like. And how would this servant lead the nations, uh, the nation of Israel, but really all the nations. So that's Isaiah. That's what he did. And he gave this word. So the word that we're talking about here is actually from Isaiah 53, uh, verse 1. And it looks almost identical to John chapter 12, verse 38. And it says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? Almost verbatim in terms of what John wrote. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this word here is this idea of the arm of the Lord. Okay, Now, the arm of the Lord is a metonym. Do we all know what a metonym is? No? Okay. A metonym is when you take a word and you use it to describe, it's something that's closely associated with the idea or the attribute of something. And that word then stands in for that idea or attribute. For instance, when you say the pen is mightier than the sword... You're not literally saying, my pen is going to fend off the sword that you're coming with, at me with, right? What it's saying is that the written word, the pen, is my the sword. So the pen is a metonym for the written word. Uh, you can talk about the crown, right? The crown is a metonym for the British royalty. When you say, you know, British royalty, you can say, this is the crown. Or when you're talking about someone who's ridiculously, ridiculously good looking, you could say, Pastor Dave Lewis, that would be a metonym for being ridiculously Good-looking, right? Checks in the mail, right, Dave? All right. So the arm of the Lord is a metonym for God's strength, for God's power, and for God's might, okay? And when you, when you hear this phrase, the arm of the Lord, or when the Jewish people heard this phrase, the arm of the Lord, it would conjure up ideas of, of deliverance, of supernatural power where like, they, like in Egypt, that they were delivered from the hands of their enemies. When God um, gave their enemies into their hand, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Philistines, all of their enemies, and God allowed them to take over that part of the world in, in, that, in their time. And so the arm of the Lord was all about military might. It was about um, God putting his strength on display on behalf of Israel. So Isaiah references the arm of the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 53. Then he goes on to say this about the servants of God. And I'm going to read you um, Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 15. It's a big chunk, so um, it's not going to be up here. I just want you to listen to it, and I want you to soak in what's being said. When it comes to the servant of God, who Isaiah writes about, we as Christians interpret that to be Jesus. So I want you to think about what you know about Jesus as I'm reading this. and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. If you were a Jewish person and you're reading this and you have just been told that the arm of the Lord will be revealed, and you hear this description of the servant of the Lord, your mind would be saying, What? No way. This cannot be possible. What about my expectation of supernatural deliverance? What about my expectation of a conquering hero who will come and save this nation? No way. But friends, I'm here to tell you that oftentimes Jesus operates outside of our expectations. Jesus operates outside of our expectation. Look at the crowd who was in Jerusalem for, for Passover when Jesus entered. You know? They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're waving palm branches because they expect someone to ride in on a war horse with sword in hand and do and do violence to their enemies. To deliver them from the shackles of Rome. That is what they're expecting from Jesus. They're calling him the king of Israel. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, in order to have life, you must die to yourself. What? Something isn't jiving here. This does not match up to my expectation, Jesus. What are you saying? Look at John the Baptist. This is my favorite example. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was, as the word tells us, like a voice crying out in the desert, make straight the paths for the Lord. He is the forerunner, the one who is making the way for Jesus to come. And when he sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God. And when he baptizes Jesus, he watches the Spirit of God descend upon his head and hears a voice say, what? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. John was the witness to all of this. But then we see in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison, or from prison, which is where he found himself, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Because John the Baptist's expectations were not met in the person of Jesus. He's sitting in jail. He's like, I didn't go into the desert for years and ate locusts and honey and clothed myself in a camel hair shirt for this? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that I've been waiting for? Because I'm beginning to have my doubts. Jesus operates outside of our expectation I mean, just look at my family, me and my family. In July of 2015, we boarded a plane to the United Arab Emirates after having sold our home, sold our cards, sold our earthly belongings, said goodbye to the only home we'd ever known, Toronto, Canada. All of our extended family, my parents, my wife's parents, our siblings, our you know, nieces and nephews, all of that, and said, God, we are going to follow you. We heard your call. We are going to to give five to 10 years of our life for this work that you're calling us to. And our expectations didn't finally match up because 18 months later, we were on a plane back to Toronto. What happened there? God, what about my expectations? But God, in an amazing way, showed us that he knows a whole lot better for us than we know for ourselves. that he has only our best in mind. We come back and discover that my daughter has severe scoliosis, needs surgery. Best doctors in Canada, able to to work on her. Didn't cost us a thing. Came back to this place, Bayview Glen Church, almost a completely different church, and got to be part of an amazing team doing awesome things to push the kingdom of God forward. Thank God that Jesus operates outside of my expectation. Now, I'm not saying that you'll never get what you want. Sometimes your expectation does line up with what Jesus wants for you. But for the most part, let God surprise you with his best plan for your good because he'll surprise you every time if you let him. Let go of your expectations, and let Jesus form your life and lead and guide you. So that was the word. How is it fulfilled? Let's look at verse 37 of chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Who are the they? They are the Jewish people, right? Again, these are the Jews who are expecting a Messiah, and so they're the ones who, even though they have seen all of these signs, they did not believe in him. Um, Jesus talks, uh, uh, Je- or John talks about them at the very beginning of the book of John, John chapter one, verse 11. He said, Jesus came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. So we know it's coming. We know that they are not going to believe despite everything they have seen. And what have they seen? They've seen many signs. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so these seven signs were explicitly named in John, right? The first one was turning water into wine at Cana, where um, Jesus began his earthly ministry, his public ministry was with that act, where his, his mom basically outed him and said, go do this thing so people, people know who you are, right? So we did that. And then the last big one, the seventh one, was raising Lazarus from the dead, which we had already talked about. And so John tells us all of these signs as proof that Jesus is the Son of God, yet still they did not believe. Still they could not place their active trust in Jesus. So what that tells me, and I hope what that tells you, is that believing in Jesus takes more than signs. Believing in Jesus takes more than signs. Maybe you're like me. Have you ever been in this spot where you've like... You've got no recourse. You have no options before you. What you need is like a miraculous intervention from God. And so you pray to God. You get on your knees and you raise up your hands. You say, God, if you would only do this thing for me, if you would perform this miracle in my life, I will change I will give you everything. I will follow you wholeheartedly. I will never go back to the sins of my past. I am going to give it all. If only you would do this miracle in my life, God, and prove and show to me you are who you are, who you say you are. Have you prayed that prayer? I have, to my own shame, on more than one occasion. And, I, and the truth is, I mean, there's still unbelief in some ways in my life. Because it takes more than miraculous signs to believe in Jesus. I mean, just look at uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in, in Luke chapter 16. So the story goes, there was this rich man who dressed opulently, had everything you could possibly imagine in this world, and just outside of his door was a, 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 blind, a, a beggar named Lazarus who had sores all over his body, and all he wanted to do was eat from the scraps of this rich man's table, but this rich man gave him nothing. And one day, this rich man died and found himself in Gehenna, in hell. And at the same time, Lazarus also passed away, and he found himself at Father Abraham's side in heaven. And so the rich man sees Lazarus up there, and he sees that he's enjoying heaven, and he's like, you know, thirsty, burning up in hell, right? And he says to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to get me some water. I'm like, he's still, he's in hell, he's, a, he's still trying to get Lazarus to do stuff for him, Right? Send me some more. Abraham says, there's a chasm fixed between us that cannot be crossed. So that's not going to happen. He said, in your life, you enjoy the good things. And in, in Lazarus' lifetime, he had nothing, and now he's enjoying the good things. And so the rich man says to Father Abraham, he says, go and send Lazarus, um, or go and tell my brothers, or send Lazarus to my brothers. I have five brothers who are still alive. Tell them what the situation is. I I want them to avoid the same outcome that I have. And Abraham, in the parable, says to this rich man, says, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he says, but if you send Lazarus, if if someone goes from the dead, is raised from the dead and goes to them, then they will for sure believe. And then Abraham says to this rich man, if they have not believed Moses and the prophets, Even if someone is raised from the dead, they would not believe. It takes more than signs when it comes to believing in Jesus. So what does it take? What does it take? Well, I actually talked about it in another sermon of mine on March the 4th of this year. So I would encourage you. (laughs) I'm going to plug this, okay? If you didn't know, we have a resource page where all of our sermons are housed online. So I would encourage you, if you missed one of our sermons, go back and look at it, okay? All the sermons on there are great, especially mine, okay? <laughs> so on March 4th, I talk about signs and miracles, and this is what I said. I said, signs are a gift. And so when we look for the gift, we actually miss the mark because what we are after isn't the gift. It isn't the miracle. It's actually the giver. It is Jesus. And when we, when we situate ourselves in that frame of mind, we will come to recognize that in fact, the giver, Jesus himself, is the gift. So believing in Jesus is recognizing that it's not about the signs that God can perform in your life. It's that Jesus himself is the miracle that we accept. Let's keep moving on. Verse 42 to 43. Verses 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. The authorities, okay, being um, the, the, the religious rulers of the time, the Jews, um, so those of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, Sadducees. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out Of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In verse forty-two we see that the Pharisees did not confess it. They did not confess the fact that they actually did believe in Jesus and was and wanted to follow him. So this speaks to Nicodemus. If you remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he comes to Jesus at night so that no one can see him and no one knows that he's doing it. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? And he says, um, but he does it so that, you know, incognito, out of fear of the ruling class. We see that in uh, Joseph of Arimathea. We never hear anything about Joseph of Arimathea beforehand. Um, Joseph of Arimathea is the one who collected Jesus' body and then had the tomb and buried him. He would have been one of the rich rulers of the time. And he also was a secret believer in Jesus. Now some of you might be in this boat as well. For whatever reason, you love Jesus, but you don't want people to know about it. Some of you might, might be there. Um, I, I had an interesting run-in with a with the, with the, with the young man at one point where this was his thing. He, he had begun coming to church um, and started listening to the message and, and felt like he wanted to follow Jesus. But when he was ready to take that step, um, ready to get baptized, he was like, but I don't want anybody to know, which was very confusing for me. I'm like, why wouldn't you want someone to know that? Because for me, to not want someone to know about Jesus means that there's a missing dimension in your faith. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I love Jesus, but I want to keep it a secret, um, I would say, uh, you know, I believe you have faith, but I think you're missing something. Because the truth is this, that believing in Jesus is personal, yes, it's your story, it's between you and God, but it's never private. Believing in Jesus is personal, but it's never private. There's no such thing as being a secret believer. Because the truth is this, guys, you belong to God. You belong to God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. It says, for Christ's love compels us because we believe that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again from the dead We belong to God and we live for him because we are compelled by the love of Christ. And what God wants is he means to use your life as a beacon of hope for others. Do you see that? When you believe in Jesus, when you call him Lord and Master, you're saying, I have hope in a world that is hopeless. Why wouldn't you want to share that with people? God wants you to use that because your story belongs to God. It is not yours to do with whatever you will. It belongs to him, and one day he will call you to share your story with somebody so that he will be glorified and so that they can come into his family. That day will come because believing in Jesus is personal, but it's not private. You cannot simply keep it to yourself. So maybe you're sitting here and you're like, okay, I hear you, Kevin, but still. Maybe you just don't have the words to say. You don't need to have all of the answers. You don't have to know the answer to every theological question, all right? You don't have to sit up here like myself and Pastor Lucas and tell somebody what the difference is between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. You don't have to have the answer. But what you have is a story. And God wants you to tell your story. Your story belongs to God. So the question is for someone like Nicodemus, someone like Joseph, Arimathea, like why wouldn't they confess it? If they believe, why wouldn't they confess it? Well, they wouldn't confess it for fear. Look at this verse from 42. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Now, understand that fear was a tactic that was used by the Pharisees to box people in, right? It's like, you don't believe the things that we're telling you to believe? Well, we are gonna punish you in this way. And the punishment was to kick them out of synagogue. Synagogue was the central place for faith, for family, for friendship, for anyone who considered themselves a Jew, okay? Without synagogue, you lose your sense of identity. And the Pharisees knew that. And so they said, if you're going to follow Jesus, we are going to kick you out. You're going to have nothing left. left. Excommunication from this community. This was the verdict of the Sanhedrin, right? We saw this uh, in, uh, in John chapter 9 when Jesus healed the, the invalid and their parents were dragged in before the Sanhedrin, right? And it said the same thing. For fear of being kicked out of the synagogue, right, they, wouldn't, um, they, they didn't acquiesce to their demands. Those are my words. That's not the Bible's words. <laughs> so this was something, this was, this was a tactic, a fear tactic that the Pharisees were holding over people in Jesus' time. And this is a tactic, fear is a tactic used by our enemy to keep you from experiencing all that God has for you. Fear is a tactic that the devil uses to keep you from experiencing all that God has for you. There's fear of the dark, all right? I mean, there's fear that a lot of us have. Fear of the dark is probably one of the top 10, right? There are so many things that happen after dark that are such good things. Have you ever seen the stars as they come out at night and there's no other ambient light to, to block them out? That happens in the dark. You would not see that otherwise. So fear of the dark sometimes keeps us from experiencing all that, that God has. A Fear of public speaking. Believe it or not, I was mortified. I remember in grade four, I did a... A public speak, a speech. And I, like to this day, it still brings heart palpitations to me when I think about it. So public speaking was not something that, for me, was was something I was gifted at. But it's something that I worked at because I worked against the fear so that I could step more fully into what God had in store for me. Flying. Some of you are fearful of flying. Well, that's probably a good one because you're in a metal tube with like a hundred other people and you have nowhere to escape to. But if you fear flying, I mean, you're never going to see the world. There's so much out there that God has for you to see and experience. You have fear of heights, fear of spiders. I have nothing good to say about spiders, so that's a good one. You should be afraid of spiders. But maybe fear of intimacy, you know. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but many of you out there have this fear, fear of intimacy, fear of rejection, fear of failure, Fear of commitment. Think about how these fears are keeping you from living fully what God has in store for you. Life in all of its fullness, he says. Freedom from fear. Fear kept these, um, these leaders from confessing Jesus publicly, but also what? Also love of Glory. The next verse, forty-three. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This word "glory" in the in the Greek is uh, "doxa." Doxa is um, where we get our word "doxology" from. It means um, honor, respect, praise. You know, we as human beings, I think we have this universal desire to be loved, to be acknowledged, to be accepted, to be affirmed. Um, It's really just part of our our DNA. Because, I mean, we're what? We're created for one another. We're created for community, right? This is, we are made in God's image. God, who is forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect co-unity with one another, have that. And so we crave it ourselves, but our need for doxa, our need for honor, respect, and praise, for acknowledgement, acceptance, affirmation, that is met in God, not in man. But what happens is that because we have this need, sin twists it, and then we look for it in unhealthy places like from others. Let's take a look at another favorite verse of mine. From 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one wins the prize? What's that prize? Doxa, honor, glory, respect, fame, all of that. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Only one receives the honor and respect and the, um, and the glory. But every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. And so this is how we need to order our thinking when it comes to the glory that we naturally want to have, glory that should come from God, okay? They do it, these athletes do it for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So what that's really telling us that they do it to receive a temporary wreath, but we receive, do it to receive an eternal wreath. Glory that comes from man is perishable and temporary. Glory that comes from God is imperishable and eternal. And so what that tells me is this, that believing in Jesus is a long game. Believing in Jesus is a long game. You see, sin twists fear and love equally, and it fixes us on this life. It makes us see only what is ahead of us. And we want, because so so much of how we experience life is through our senses, sensually, and it's so tangible. And so we think, you know, without even thinking, giving it a second thought, this tends to be what we think we have. This is all that we have. The totality of our existence rests in our life from birth to death. But that is not the truth. The truth that there is a life to come. And what God's desire is for you is for that life to come rather than what we can get out of this life. God has a life waiting for you. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can kill both soul and body in hell. Do not be fixed so much on the present. Think about the future. Think about those things that are eternal. Eugene Peterson, I love the way he frames it. He, he, he calls it um, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction, living a life where every day you decide, I am going to pick up my cross and follow Jesus until the day he calls you home. And then life truly in all its fullness comes into your possession. Speaking of obedience, this really brings up our last section here. And this last section summarizes the themes from the first part of John. I'm going to ha- see if you can recognize some of these themes as I read the last few verses of, um, of chapter 12. And maybe even go back today, review some of what went before. I know, I've already asked you to read chapter 13 to 15. I'm going to ask you to read chapters 1 to 12 as well, okay? Read all of John, if you can, in this week. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be helpful. Let's look at verse 44. And go to 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Hold that slide for a second. So, of course, Jesus came to say, judge the world. What he's saying is here that right now, as I am with you bodily, I am not here to judge you. I am here to save you. Of course, one day, he will judge the world, and we're going to see that in the next verse here. 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Do you hear that? The humility that he is but a servant. He is here to obey and do the things the Father says. And then lastly, verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, humility and obedience. Let me read to you this quote from C.K. Barrett. And I think this will kind of encapsulate where it is that, what we've talked about today. He says, it is particularly striking that John ends his final summary of the public ministry on this note. Jesus is not a figure of independent greatness. He is the word of God, or he is nothing at all. In the first part of the gospel, which here closes, Jesus lives in complete obedience to the Father. In the second part, he will die in the same Obedience. That's where we're headed. The obedience of the Son to death, even death on the cross. And so the last thing I want to share with you is this, that believing in Jesus is about obedience. Believing in Jesus is about obedience. It is about living life not for yourself, but for him who died for you and rose again from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness affected so um, profoundly in uh, in your son, the forgiveness that we have, the life that we have through him, the salvation, God. We are grateful that believing in him means that we can have life and life in all its fullness, that we can place our active trust in Jesus, the Christ, your son. So God, even as we um, contemplate some that has been said here, the hardness of, like, that, that believing in you can be hard, um, that what you desire for us in terms of sharing our story with people so that you can be glorified, so many would come to know that you are the hope of the world. God, would you, um, would you work in our hearts and would you allow us, Lord, to lift up the name of your son Jesus, believing in him and walking with him each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.